Well, it is a joy to be back with you guys. Me and Laura had the rare opportunity to quest out to Moscow, Idaho last week, and uh, we went out there for a conference, and it was incredibly encourage, encouraging. I also want to thank Pastor Thacker for manning the fort here and to bringing you guys the word every time I leave. I am stricken with anxiety, just wanting to make sure you guys are cared well for and through Pastor Joe and then the McGowans on music. Um, just so thankful for their ministry. And uh, Joe got me back this week. He texted me Friday night asking if I could cover for him this morning because um, he's not, not feeling well. So I was able to go down to St. Mark this morning and minister to them. And that was a joy as well. So do be praying for Pastor Joe and for his, his healing. And after listening to Pastor Joe's sermon, I was doubly edified, uh, not just because it was a strong and faithful and perhaps unexpected word from the Lord, but because it coalesced so specifically with what the Lord encouraged, encouraged me and Laura with on our trip, namely the power and the importance of song in corporate worship and the need to recover robust singing, and singing also the songs that God wrote, namely the, the Psalms. And that's something in Moscow that they've been cultivating for like 20 or 30 years. I jokingly said, four-part harmony is just the air they seem to breathe out there. And it was truly, there's just nothing like getting caught up in something. You can hear about it, but man, to experience it was amazing. And to get a glimpse of what I so long for the Lord to do in us, we experience the power and the beauty of that. And I so long for us to cultivate that. I long for our kids to grow up thinking it's the most normal thing in the world to sing robustly and to sing the Psalms and to sing together and to know their specific parts. And so I think the Lord wants to do that here, and it was just cool to, to catch a glimpse of that. But it is so, so good to be back. And singing, the act of singing itself, even when you think of the physical process, it really is a curious thing. These human bodies, they're curious things. Like, think of laughter. How bizarre is laughter? Just like the spontaneous convulsive heaving, right? It's, we do it, so it's, you're doing it right now. It's normal, but if aliens came, they would probably think we needed medical attention immediately. I mean, it, it's, think about it. It is a bizarre thing the next time you hear laughter. It's like, wow, that's strange. Singing is kind of like that. It's kind of like talking. It's a similar product of wind passing along stretched flesh but it's completely different. It's qualitatively different. You can certainly be moved by a compelling speech, but when someone sings with skill and with confidence, it is an entirely different thing. It is transcendent. It takes you to a different level, as it were. And that's because singing taps into something deeper in us. It's almost like a different language altogether, as if talking gives thoughts, voice to our thoughts, but, but singing gives voice to our souls. Many are uncomfortable at the thought of public speaking. How about singing a solo in public? That's the stuff of nightmares for most people. What's so different? Well, perhaps 
It's because song comes from another place, someplace deeper. And this also means that you can tell a lot about a people by not just the books they write, but by the songs they sing as a people. You can tell what people love. You can tell what captures their attention and what stirs their souls. I thought about doing a reading of the lyrics of some of the current hits in our culture, but I'll spare you lest I have to put myself under church discipline by them. And it's not encouraging, but it is telling. Our songs define what we love, the depth of our souls. But here's an interesting thought experiment. What songs do you think we would sing if we had never sinned? What would be our anthem if we had never sinned? Well, perhaps a good place to start answering that question would be to consider what the unfallen angels sing. What sets the angels' hearts on fire? What constantly overflows out of their being? Well, in Isaiah 6-3, the prophet gets a very rare vision of God's throne room. Be careful when books claim to have a vision into God's throne room. It doesn't happen much, and usually the people can't even speak about it. It's so glorious. In Isaiah 6, we get one of them, and we get a glimpse, perhaps, into a song that started at the beginning of creation itself with the heavenly host. The prophet records this in Isaiah 6, 3. And one seraphim called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is, is full of his glory. That's even why we do the responsive. It's a good thing for creatures to respond back and forth about the holiness and the goodness of God. Interestingly, we see this again in Revelation 4.8. This time it's the Apostle John. He has a vision into the heavenly throne room, and he sees four living creatures around God's throne, and he writes this. Revelation 4.8. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That is to say, the unfallen angels never tire of extolling in the holiness of God. But continuing in our thought experiment, what song would the unfallen angels start singing if they looked down into our fallen world? So we're shifting it. Now the unfallen angels looking into the fallen world. What would capture their attention? Well, we don't have to guess. Because in the very next chapter of Revelation, we are actually told. Something was revealed to them that was so astounding, something that was part and parcel to the fallen world, that the entire heavenly host erupted into a new song. So that should have our attention. And it was the moment that they finally understood what Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, had accomplished through the incarnation and through the cross. It was the aha moment when the angels who longed to understand the gospel finally got it. And we see the mystery in Revelation 5. We see Jesus Christ presented in the throne room of heaven as the Lamb of God 
who was the conquering lion of Judah. And they realized he was the crucified king now. And in Revelation 5-9, as the mystery of the cross was revealed, the apostle John recounts for us what he saw. And he says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you, the second person of the Trinity, you ransomed people for God. So the unfallen angels had watched in awe at the incarnation and in horror at the crucifixion, but now they saw what it had accomplished. The Son was slain to ransom people back to God. And this caused a new song to break forth. And then the song starts to swell through the heavenly host. It is an amazing scene. Read all of Revelation 5 later, but I'll pick up in 11. So John hears this song break out, and then he says, And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice now of many angels, numbering myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus Christ, slain to ransom sinners, prompted an eruption of song unlike anything creature the creation had ever experienced. Because the gospel, when it is seen with clarity, is the most astonishing thing we could ever behold. So it is right that we sing, and we will sing for all of eternity. And as we enter back into Philippians, we find ourselves in the middle of Paul's Christ hymn. So we got in this last week, or two weeks ago, and talked about this section. It's a rich section of scripture that was probably an early Christian song or a creed that was a highlight reel of the person of Christ. For context again, Paul is wanting the Philippian church to be unified, and he's exhorted them to treat each other with humility, to consider each other more to consider each other more significant than themselves, but now he's moving from practical exhortation to giving them an example to follow. But not just any example. He points them to the ultimate example of humility, Jesus Christ. And that's the section we find ourselves in. Last week, we considered the astonishing humility of the incarnation, that God would become man, that the eternal, always existing creator would humble himself and be born as a baby. And now today, as we continue on, we're going to focus just on verse 8 of chapter 2. And we're going to consider the astonishing agony of Calvary. We want to better understand what caused the heavenly host to break out in song. So please open, if you haven't, your scriptures to Philippians 2. And I'll read again verse 5 through 8, and we'll land on verse 8. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he, he starts on this highlight reel of Christ. He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. 
to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that's the incarnation, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul here emphasizes something to the Philippians that would have made their stomach twist. Namely, that Jesus Christ was crucified on a Roman cross. Remember, Philippi is a, a, a Roman outpost of sorts, and so they would have understood those five words. Even death on a cross, because the Son of God wasn't just killed, but as the angelic host understood when they saw him, the Son of God was slain terribly and mercilessly on a hill as a public spectacle, which became the bridge between heaven and earth. And so if we're going to stand before Christ in his gospel with the due astonishment, we need to understand something of the agony of Calvary, or as Paul says simply, even death on a cross. There is so much caught up in those five words that we would do well to dwell on them for a moment. So today, we're going to hear the story of Jesus' death as God himself told it. Namely, we're going to read it from a gospel account. Now, the crucifixion of Christ is recorded in all four of the gospels, but today we'll focus on Matthew's account. And so I'm simply just going to read it and make a few comments along the way. So open your scripture to Matthew 27 so you can follow along in this text. And we'll begin in verse 26. And children, I'll say up front that some of the things here are, are hard to hear. But I do want you to listen closely because it is good and it is right for us to understand all that Jesus did to save us. So Matthew 27. So for context, we find ourselves in Jerusalem where thousands of Jews have just made a pilgrimage for the Passover. And Jesus has just endured an all-night corrupt trial where he was ultimately condemned for blasphemy. And in the moment where we pick up on here, we find Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman governor. He's trying to win favor with the Jews, and so he offers to release one prisoner. We have Barabbas, who's a murderer and an insurrectionist, and then we have Jesus Christ. And the Jews, with a unified voice, cried out for the release of Barabbas. And then we find in verse 26 these words. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now when we think of the astonishing agony of Calvary, remember, we're thinking of those five words, even death on a cross. We want to fill those five words with biblical imagery. When we think of the agony of Calvary, it began before the cross. And here Matthew recounts that Jesus was first scourged after Barabbas was released. Now, scourging was a horror all unto itself. It's where the prisoner's back would be bared, and he'd be tied to a post, 
And he would be whipped over and over again with something called the cat of nine tails, which was nine leather thongs that had bone and barb at the end of them. And I won't go into graphic detail, but if you've seen The Passion, you perhaps have a category for this. It was awful, and it was brutal. And some of the prisoners even died from the scourging alone. And that happened to our Lord Jesus before he even made his way to Calvary. Continuing on in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail the king of the Jews! And they spit on him. And then they took the reed and they struck him with it on his head. Remember that in the Philippians text, Paul, in context, is presenting Jesus as the ultimate example of humble obedience. Humble obedience to the Trinitarian plan of redemption. Well, there's no picture that could better present this than what we just read. It's difficult to imagine the level of restraint and the level of grace and the level of sheer love that would allow God Almighty, the King, to subject himself to this blasphemy by a rebellious people. And remember, Jesus, God the Son, was fully aware that at any moment, with just a word, this could all be done. He could crush Rome like that. Do you remember what he said to Peter just hours before when Peter was trying to defend him and he cuts off the high priest's servant's ear? And then Jesus heals him and he says this to Peter. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father. And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels, by the way. So I say that just to show you, Jesus was fully aware as he's being mocked and spit on that he could call 72,000 angels like that. This was purposeful. He didn't. He allowed himself to be beaten and mocked and humiliated. For our sake, he stayed poised in humble obedience, in complete submission to the will of the Father, with his eyes set fully on the glory and salvation that he was accomplishing. And now we move forward in the narrative. Pick up with me in verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross, presumably because he was so weak from the beatings and the blood loss. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, 
mixed with gall. But when Jesus tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. Now, this was probably meant to be something of an ancient painkiller. But Jesus refused it. Even in this moment of agony, he refused it because he was resolved to drink the cup of suffering down to the bottom. And then verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And here, in just a few words, Matthew tells us that Jesus was crucified. He doesn't give us details, perhaps because it was such a horrible thing to recount and because his readers would have known exactly what the terrible process was. Matthew simply just says, and they crucified him. Or as Paul puts it, he became obedient even to death on a cross. That is, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, after suffering all the agony of betrayal, of the scourging, and of the mocking, he was crucified. His body broken and stretched over a wooden cross, and his hands and feet were nailed to it. And he was lifted up into the air, suspended between heaven and earth, fighting to remain conscious as electric shocks of pain pulsed through his body. Then Matthew continues this terrible narrative in verse 36. Then the soldiers sat down, and they kept watch over him. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, that's the head Jews, with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, and he can't even save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Well, let God deliver him then, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So here, even at the pinnacle of Jesus' suffering, his exposure and his agony, he's being mocked, he's being reviled, and he's being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember, we're filling those five words with deeper biblical understanding. There's so much caught up in those words. And in Luke's account, we learn that Jesus, far from reviling back, actually asked the Father to forgive them. See, Jesus never allowed his heart to become hardened to his enemies, to the very end. And the reason is, we can remain cool for a certain amount of time, but when somebody squeezes us hard enough, what's still in there will come out, right? You might say, 
I'm usually so patient, but this person made me angry. No, you still have anger issues, and that person just squeezed you hard enough. And Jesus, in the moment of total crushing, what came out was compassion and love and forgiveness because it went all the way down. And he never descended to the level of his mockers. He remained steadfast and he remained Godward, still even considering others to the end. And now Matthew continues, and this is our final section, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and he filled it with sour wine and he put it on a reed and he gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. Even death on a cross. And we know from John's account that Jesus' final word was tetelestai, meaning it is finished. In his final breath, Jesus had endured the agony of Calvary. Jesus fulfilled all that was required to pay for your sins and to pay for my sins and to pay for the sins of the world. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You can read those words so quickly, but they are 10,000 miles deep. And this is part of what made the angelic host stand in utter amazement, causing them to break forth in a new song. When they saw the lengths that God the Son went to ransom a people back to God, he didn't just become a man. He didn't just become a servant. He didn't just serve until death, but he endured betrayals and beatings and scourgings and mockings. And ultimately, he made his way up to the hill of Calvary, to the apex of the city, to meet the apex of human agony, death, even death on a cross. So Pilgrim Hill, Look at Jesus on the cross today. See him suffering and see him declaring to you, it is finished because your eternal life is hidden in those words. This was Christ declaring that the debt that our sin had incurred had been completely paid for and the righteous wrath of God against human sin the sin of his people that he was redeeming had been fully and completely exhausted in Christ's agony on the cross. This is what Colossians 2, 13 through 14 reminds us. It says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven all of our trespasses. And how did he do that? Well, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands when he set them aside, nailing them 
to the cross, to Telestai. So yes, look at Christ on the cross and see your redemption, and then Pilgrim Hill. Let us look to Jesus on the cross and see an example. For remember, in the immediate context, Paul is calling us to a new mindset, a new way of thinking, a new way of loving each other, like Christ, for we are not above our master. And Christ's love came at great personal cost, so may our love for each other be so. And Christ's love for us was gritty, and may our love for each other endure through hard things. And Christ met us in our moment of deepest need, and may we do so for each other. And Christ took the initiative to seek us out and to save us. And may we take initiative in our love for each other and our love for our city. And Christ's love was driven by humble obedience. And when relationship isn't easy at Pilgrim Hill, may our love for each other be a fruit of our obedience to our Father. Or may we at Pilgrim Hill have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, and he took the form of a servant, and he was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And as we see our crucified Savior, let that inform our songs for the next 50 years. And may we pass that song on to our grandchildren. May it be. And all God's people said. Amen. Father in heaven, I am keenly aware in this moment that these things are spiritually discerned because the cross is foolishness to the carnal mind. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that Christ in all of his glory would, would reign in our hearts and reign in our minds. We would stand amazed as we behold the cross. And we would glory in both our Savior and our King and we would have the mind of Christ as we love each other.